Thanks for joining me for Esther, chapter 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus who reigned from India even to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Susa, the palace, in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. He displayed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honour of his excellent majesty many days, even 180 days. When these days were fulfilled, the king made a seven-day feast for all the people who were present in Susa, the palace, both great and small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of white and blue material, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rings and marble pillars. The couches were of gold and silver on a pavement of red, white, yellow and black marble. They gave them drinks in golden vessels of various kinds, including royal wine in abundance, according to the bounty of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had instructed all the officials of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also, Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zetha, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the royal crown to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was beautiful. But the Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by the eunuchs. Therefore the king was very angry, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for it was the king's custom to consult those who knew law and judgment, and next to him were Karshana, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Masana, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law, because she has not done the bidding of King Ahasuerus by the eunuchs? Mamukan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen has not done wrong to just the king, but also to all the princes and to all the people who are in the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen will become known to all women causing them to show contempt for their husbands when it is reported. King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she didn't come. Today the princesses of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's deed, will tell all the king's princes, this will cause much contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal commandment go from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it cannot be altered, that Vashti may never again come before King Ahasuerus, let the king give her royal estate to another is better than she. When the king's decree, which he shall make, is published throughout all his kingdom, for it is great, all the wives will give their husbands honour, both great and small. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukan, for he sent letters into the king's provinces, into every province, according to its writing, and to every people in their language, that every man should rule his own house, speaking in the language of his own people. 
So we're entering into the world of Persia. <laughs> and uh, it's such an interesting time and I've got two, note, two pages of notes and so much more to say that we can fit in this video. But uh, we were just in Nehemiah yesterday and we've actually jumped backwards in time from Nehemiah to get to Esther. So in the Persian Empire, you know, there were the Babylonians, right? And the Babylonians were the ones that destroyed Jerusalem and took everyone away to captivity. But then along comes Cyrus the Great, who destroys Babylon and becomes the, you know, the king of Babylon, but he's a Persian. Uh, Cyrus has a son, and I'm trying to remember now, but I, I think his son is Darius. And then Darius's son is Xerxes. And Xerxes is the guy right here. I'm pretty sure that's it, but there might have been another king after Cyrus. Anyway, I was just looking all this up recently. So, but Xerxes the first is the king of Esther, but Xerxes has a son called Artaxerxes, and that's the king in the book of Nehemiah. So we were just in Nehemiah, and you know Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, but Artaxerxes is the son of the guy who's the king here in the book of Esther. So we've actually gone right through to Nehemiah, but now we've jumped back to a previous king for this book. In fact, one of the commentators was saying, uh, you know, I'm presumably he's right, that Queen Vashti, the, the queen that was in this chapter number one, the one who refused to come and she lost her spot as queen, one of the commentators was saying that she was pregnant at the time that that happened and she was pregnant with King Artaxerxes. So the guy who becomes the king in the book of Nehemiah is actually, apparently, in Vashti's womb when this story happens in chapter one. So all of that's really interesting. Um, you can dig up into the history of all of that more. It doesn't make a lot of difference to us. But the point is that this is now back before the book of Nehemiah. In fact, this whole book of Esther happens in between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah are a continuous story um, spanning over 100 years and with various Persian kings. You know, Darius is one of the kings. Well, that's when the book of Daniel happens, at least some of it. And uh, then in between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra is... This book here, the book of Esther. So um, Esther's an interesting book. For starters, no one is completely sure who wrote the book, but a lot of people think the book was written by Mordecai. Now we haven't met Mordecai yet, we're going to meet him tomorrow, <laughs> in chapter two that is. And uh, Mordecai is um, one of the main protagonists of the book, you know, one of the main good characters. And uh, we're going to meet him tomorrow. And some people, in fact, Josephus, the famous historian, thinks Mordecai wrote it. And I think that's pretty good, a pretty good thing to go with. Um, but there are a few Bible writers who think Ezra wrote the book. Ah, I'm not really sure about that because, uh, <laughs> you know, we all have our theories. But uh, anyway, that's another one of the popular suggestions. Now, something I found like super interesting was... Um, is uh, that you know the Dead Sea Scrolls, you've probably heard of them. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a discovery of, of scrolls, biblical scrolls and other scrolls that were found at the Dead Sea at a place called Qumran. And um, you know, during the time of Jesus, they had all these different groups of Jews, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes and the Zealots. And the Essenes were the people that they went off to live on their own. They like secluded themselves because they felt like the other Jews were unholy they weren't doing it right, so they secluded themselves. But one of the things they did was they made copies of Bible scrolls 
thank God they did, because when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they found like 900 scrolls. And a lot of our Bible translations today are made so much better and more accurate by these discovery of old scrolls. So it's terrific. And, um, but when they went through, they found a copy of every single book of the Old Testament, except for, you guessed it, the book of Esther was not there. And so there's been this like grand old discussion. You know, why was Esther not why did the, you know, the Essenes, you know, who used to make copies of scrolls, why did they not include Esther? And uh, <laughs> um, one of the main theories that people keep coming up with is that the, the word or the name God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. And um, so I guess, you know, get your Bible out, start flicking through, see if you can find the word God anywhere in there. In the book of Esther, you can't. Now, what happened was at some point later, you know, around about 300 years after all this happened, somebody, at least this is, this is how the story apparently goes, somebody thought that they needed to fill in the missing name of God and they wrote all these extra bits to Esther, which were written in Greek. So the book of Esther is written in Hebrew, but someone made extra bits of Esther, which were written in Greek, and they were kind of added in. So in different places through the book, you know, Esther will say a prayer or it'll include things Mordecai said or things he said when he was praying and fasting. So a lot of God stuff got added in. And um, those are called the extra chapters of Esther. And when uh, the Bible was being translated into Latin, you know, by Jerome in around about 390, he was looking at this and he got all the, the Greek bits and he thought, you know, not they're not really a part of the original story. He tacked them on the end instead of leaving them in, inserted into all the various spots. So we're going to get to the extra chapters of Esther in a few years when we do the apocryphal books. It's not considered by a lot of Christians to be a part of the Bible, but it's still very old material. It could be true, um, but in any case, it's certainly interesting, uh, and we'll get to it. Uh, just so, just letting you all know that that's um, what's ahead. But... The book of Esther doesn't have the word God in it. <laughs> I don't know why it wasn't included in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Perhaps they just didn't think it was a part of the Bible because it's more of like a story. I don't know. But I want to say that God is everywhere in the book of Esther. As we go through the book of Esther, it's, it's so obviously wrong to say God's not in the book of Esther. He's everywhere. He's in it. He's, um, he's in the... Um, in all the events that happen, he's clearly with Esther. In fact, Esther is actually a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Mordecai is actually a picture of the Holy Spirit. All the way through the book, you can see both of them reflecting Jesus and the Holy Spirit all the way through, and they're a great lesson to us. It's one of the most terrific books of the Bible. <laughs> God is so thoroughly in every part of this. And when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of... Um, the, the struggle that a lot of Jewish people have today. Now, a lot of Jewish people, they're so sincere about the Lord, but they just cannot see Jesus, who is everywhere in the Old Testament. So Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. And as you know, we, when, especially when we were going through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and the Judges, we were pointing out that Jesus in all those different places. Jesus is everywhere in the Bible, even the idea of a king over God's people, that's Jesus. You know, Samson going like this and pushing the pillars, that was Jesus. Uh, Jesus is in so many places. Jesus is, is even typified by Esther in this book. 
but Jewish people cannot see it. And so here you've got a book where the name of God is not there, but God is clearly there, and Jewish people know that. And yet that's a, an exact example of Christ who's everywhere through the Old Testament. He's not named. The word Christ doesn't appear, although it's, it's, it is kind of obviously mentioned in a few places, but Jesus is everywhere. If um, you ever think of Jewish people, pray for them. Pray that their minds would be enlightened. Paul said in 2 Corinthians three or four, somewhere there, he said that there was a veil over their minds that was stopping them from seeing. There's actually a veil over a lot of people's minds stopping them from seeing, but you can pray them into truth, pray the spirit of truth to be on them. So uh, anyway, we're into the book of Esther and the king has this great feast, 180 days. Now that's a long time to have a feast. And you might be thinking to yourself, why on earth would someone hold a feast that long? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it's not, it's not all about hedonism, even though that, that was certainly a part of it. The king was definitely hedonistic, but the king was preparing for war with Greece. So the king wanted to invade Greece. Now his, his father Darius, I think it was his father Darius, had already tried to invade Greece and failed. When I was in high school, we did ancient history and we, we learned about the Peloponnesian Wars and the Battle of Thermopylae and all these things we learned about the triremes and the, the naval battles and the, the Greeks and the Persians were attacking each other. You, you know from history, the Greeks eventually win, but there are two great Persian wars, one by Darius and one by this guy, Ahasuerus or Xerxes I. And this guy is actually in, the, in chapter one here with his 180 day feast is actually preparing for war. He's actually showing the wealth and the splendor of his kingdom to all the important people and he's in the process of recruiting them. He's convincing them we need to have this battle and we need to attack. So it's basically propaganda, public orations. It's, it's, it's planning, but all done with winning people over with wine, showing them how much wealth the kingdom has. We can afford this battle. So, um, you know, it's what modern governments do when they want to make a big change. They take time convincing people and uh, the king, he was doing it with a big, big feast. But in the process, of course, his wife refuses to come. Now, uh, he, there's different theories about this too, because it says that he wanted to, her to wear her royal crown and show off her beauty. Some commentators thought that that meant that he wanted her to come and stand out naked in front of everyone and just with her royal crown on. And, uh, you know, it completely makes sense why you'd say no to that. <laughs> um, but there's, it's not completely convincing that theory and we don't know for sure that that's true. The commentator Brenneman, he said that in the culture of the Persians, it was very common for the, the women that belonged to the king to have veiled faces. So you know how women wear a veil when they get married, but then when after they're married, they take it off. But for the king's wives or the king's queen to always wear a veil so that no one would look upon the king, the king's wife, except for the king. So this is apparently a cultural thing. And so what the king is asking here in the middle of his drunken party, he's having a party for 180 days and he's in a moment of high spirits, so he's probably drunk. And in that moment, he wants to show all the people how beautiful his wife is. So he wants her to come wearing her royal crown. He's asking her to break with culture and tradition by revealing what she looks like to all these important people and she refuses to do it. To me, that 
is the most sensible thing I've heard about this. <laughs> Even though a lot of commentators are suggesting maybe she had to come naked, I, I think that this idea that she had to come unveiled wearing a crown, to me, that just feels right. <laughs> and um, so she refuses to come, of course, and loses her job. And uh, then at the end of this chapter, he goes off to war and he's gone for four years. So we're gonna, in the next chapter, we're gonna start with Queen Esther, but that's four years later. Who knew? Anyway, the Book of Esther is a fascinating book. Thanks for joining me in it. And uh, stick around with me for the next nine days as we explore life in Persia and the amazing way that the Lord works through the people in it and through our lives as well. Lord, thank you for the Book of Esther, one of the most fabulous stories in the Bible. And I ask that it would live for us as we go through it in these days ahead. In Jesus' name. Amen.